0: Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 246. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry.
1: Hello, Valerie. So good to be here.
0: On today's show we are going to answer questions about what is the truth about hair conditioners? Hmm. Are beauty products poisoning us? Are Uh-oh. cruelty-free products still safe? Are eye creams worth the money? And is brow wax just soap? Well, this feels kind of like a depressing show.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a second. That's five five questions. That's a lot. Whoa.
0: A big show, and it seems like doom and gloom, but the good news is we are here to help dispel these myths, demystify your shopping cart at Sephora, and help make the right choices for you.
1: Absolutely, we are. And you know what else we're here to do in this world?
0: (laughs) Talk about what you've...
1: (laughs) We're here to help people, and uh, the way I help people is I donate blood. (laughs) So I donated blood today.
0: You're a serial blood donator right
1: well I used to be now I'm I donate blood twice a year
0: okay okay
1: I used to I used to donate like every chance I could and then one day my doctor's like yeah maybe you shouldn't donate so much blood <laughs> like okay <laughs> although I have to say this guy got his uh, degree from the University of the Caribbean so I <laughs> I don't know how much faith I had in it. But
0: he's a doctor. He had to pass the exams, right?
1: He is a doctor. I I guess so. I (laughs) I guess.
0: Yeah. I used to uh, donate blood quite a bit uh, because when I was younger, I lived in a region where they put a restriction on my blood because of mad cow disease. We've talked about that a bit uh, before. And then once the ban was lifted, I I used to donate all the time. And now I just kind of of forget. I have a you know, a lesser known blood type, A negative, Oh, Uh, but I just, I don't donate too often anymore.
1: I am O positive.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: I remind myself to do it every year. Every January I come up with all my goals and my, I have this one area of goals is help the world and blood donating is part of help the world. So
0: Oh, that's great. I donate a lot of blood for lab testing. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm at the doctor a bit, but <laughs> no, not the same. I totally get what you mean. Uh, How's Porch Kitty doing? We haven't heard about Porch Kitty in a while. You know,
1: Porch Kitty is doing good. I just saw Porch Kitty yesterday because uh, I leave out food for Porch Kitty, and then sometimes the food's gone, but I don't see the cat, and I'm like, well, is that just squirrels or rats eating my cat <laughs> food?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. but it acts... You should put, like, a little camera. I, yeah. I, well,
1: yesterday I saw Porch Kitty. Eating the food, and what I did, I I got a shelter. You know, in Chicago, it's gonna get cold, so I went out and I got a shelter for porch kitty, and I put it in my backyard. So,
0: you were the best porch kitty dad ever. I
1: know, and it runs away from me, so <laughs> I get I get nothing. You have to
0: put the food like near it, so it knows it's its new porch kitty home. Yeah,
1: yeah, that should. I think I think porch kitty's warming up to me. I don't know. It, it might take a little while though. <laughs> or maybe maybe it's just using me. <laughs> it's,
0: it's probably using you. Cats are known to do that. I have a hole in my thumb. Uh, my parents are visiting. They have their cat with them. This cat is pure evil, pure evil. Oh, no. And it likes me, but it doesn't really like anyone. It loves my okay. mom. It allows me to come up to it, which is very bizarre, according to my parents. But uh, Kitty did not like me. I put a fang into my thumb. I had to pull my thumb out of the fang. It was awful. Oh, my!
1: Ow, oh. Ooh, and ow.
0: all I did was scratch her. I'm just trying to love Kitty.
1: <laughs> I hope that doesn't get infected.
0: Yeah, it probably will. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk some beauty industry news.
1: Valerie, did you see that big news about that sunscreen brand Pareto? You
0: mean burrito? <laughs>
1: it feels like burrito.
0: <laughs> what an interesting name, right?
1: Burrito is actually something I feed the porch
0: kitty. <laughs> I also think it's a feline towel restraint method. Oh, it? <laughs> but anyway.
1: Well, here's the basic story. Uh, you know that brand, the Inky Decoder? Yeah. Uh, which... Actually, not this brand. it's a website or maybe it's a brand. I don't know. Uh, they 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 promise that you know you go there, you put an ingredient in it'll tell you what the ingredient does. And you know for consumers, it's a decent site, although I have to say they they sometimes um, uncritically will post claims about ingredients, which I don't think are actually supported by the science. yeah, <laughs> anyway, they. Uh, but they're a very popular website. So, anyway, the Inky Decoder website, they they had some samples of this Pareto sunscreen and they sent it for independent testing. And they found that something which was marketed as SPF 50 plus, uh, and actually the brand claims it's over 80 SPF. Well, in their independent testing, it only scored SPF 19. Uh, and they published. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> now. Corrito was quick to kind of blame their manufacturer for not making a product. uh, And they have also paused sales of their sunscreen. So it wasn't like they were defending themselves right away. They They were finding somebody else to blame, which kind of suggests that maybe they did not do the testing themselves. They probably just hired a contract manufacturer to make their products and then relied on the data that the contract manufacturer gave them to make their claims.
0: Which I believe is totally possible because believe it or not, a lot of people don't formulate their own sunscreens. They go to, at least in the United States, an OTC licensed manufacturer who has uh, the ability to manufacture sunscreens, maybe the experience to manufacture sunscreens, and you rely on them for formulation. It's not like a moisturizer or a shampoo where you can just go to anybody. There's a few consultants who specialize in sunscreens, but for the most part, these brands are going to the manufacturers and saying, hey, I would love an SPF 50 plus. What do you have? And they provide it. Now, unfortunately, when you're a brand, the onus is on you to substantiate everything. You just cannot take the word of your contract manufacturer for it, but it does happen.
1: And this is actually the reason, when I'm talking to consumers, this is the reason I say, you know what, all things being equal, the c- products made by bigger companies are going to be more reliable than ones made by smaller companies. I mean, pr- I mean, not that a small company can't make a reliable product, but, you know, if, if corners are going to be cut, <laughs> it's more likely that a, a smaller company is going to be doing that.
0: And doing a one-time sunscreen test isn't going to cut it. Sunscreen Suncre- testing is super expensive. Okay. and. It needs to be validated multiple times and just doing it once and being like, oops, got my SPF.
1: Eh. I will mention that I believe the Pareto sunscreen brand is a a Korean brand. So I I don't think it's made in the US, but what you're saying about a limited number of manufacturers who make sunscreens still holds even in brands made outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. people of course online are uh, vilifying Purito, and they're saying that the brand is lying <laughs> to their consumers and making false claims and certainly this is hurting their brand's reputation but I'll say this that you know I doubt Purito was lying when they make that claim on their packaging you know it honestly doesn't make a lot of sense that a brand uh, you know they're a significant, they're not a tiny brand they're a significant brand it would make sense that they're going to lie about something so basic right yeah um, especially when it can be easily checked. But, you know, I, I think it is possible that Pareto, you know, they put out these claims because they honestly believe the products were living up to these SPF claims that they're making. Uh, but it's also possible that while they believe their products were doing that, uh, maybe the products didn't live up to it. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, first, as we said, if Pareto didn't run these tests themselves and they just relied on their suppliers, uh, of course that's going to happen, right? You're like, your supplier's like, oh yeah, it's SPF 80, and you're like, okay, that's what they said. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so if they don't run the tests themselves, you know, they might believe the products are there when they're not. There is also a notorious uh, testing house in the United States whose founder was arrested for falsifying data. And for years, <laughs> for years... They, oh, that story. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they would run the sunscreen tests and then they would just send data back to the, the company that hired them and say, oh, yeah, you passed. And <laughs> the company's like... Oh, yeah,
0: the, F, the FBI raided that place. It was a big <laughs> that's deal.
1: That's it. Now, I have no evidence that the testing company that Pareto used did this but it just says that kind of thing can happen so so that's a case where you know the product didn't live up to the spf claims but it's not you can't really fault the brand for that happening that that can happen to anybody um now the other thing is to know that the testing done for spf is well you know it's it's not always really accurate in fact i was just on a webinar uh yesterday with an expert in uh, SPF expert in Australia, and he was working on coming up with the new uh, new test protocol for worldwide international standards, and and he said, you know, if you give a brand, if you give a testing house a, a specific SPF range, well, they're going to come within that range. But if like if you say, oh, this is going to be an SPF 50, they're going to get really close to that. Or if you give them the same product and you said, oh, this is going to be about an SPF 20 they're going to get closer to 20. So so the testing is a little bit dicey, I would say.
0: Yeah. And it's different in many geographies, right? Like you could test in the US, you could test in Europe, you could test in Australia, you could test in Asia, and they have very slightly different methodologies that can lead to different results as well.
1: Exactly. And also this is done on real live people. So the test people that they're testing is the population is going to be different than say maybe the population of somewhere else in the world so it's not terribly surprising they would get different uh, effects right
0: nope not at all
1: and you know if we're being frank uh well the the testing on SPS, S- <laughs> which we are frank that's what <laughs> exactly. we do actually frank is my father <laughs> but uh you know if, if we're just being straight up here a lot of the testing that's done in the cosmetic industry is a little bit dicey like that. I mean, it's, it's yep. you know, you, you see, claims on a bottle, uh, it, it's important for you to know that the claims testing is not the same thing as scientific research. You see, here's the difference. When, when you're researching something for science, once you get some finding, you're going to repeat that test. And then you repeat it again. And some other lab is also going to repeat that test. And it's really only until it's been repeated a bunch of times in independent ways that you get and you get similar results that you can finally say, hey, I've made some kind of discovery. Here's a new fact. And you you put that out. But this is not how claims testing goes. Not at all. (laughs) Right. It's more like, okay, we we want, to, we want to make this sort of claim. Uh, can you get us some data that supports what we want to say here? And now, to be clear, it's illegal for companies to just lie, right? So nobody lies or makes up false claims. But you run a test, and if you get the data that supports what you want to say, you're done. You know, you're like, okay, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, Don't I test mean, anymore. claims
0: testing is so expensive, and you pretty much design the study in a way that will demonstrate a result. Right, you're a paying customer, so they'll. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. It's like moisturized skin. My moisturizer moisturizes skin. I'm going to compare it to a skin that I didn't put the moisturizer on. Boom. Right. Could you put any moisturizer on and it would work? Sure, but I mean that's just the way claims testing goes. Right,
1: and you you can't lie, but you know don't take these claims as like science right? as like scientific right. fact as if as
0: if uh aristotle wrote right, them or
1: something right. i mean i could see that maybe the manufacturer working for Perito did an spf test on their formula and they got that 80 result and they're like okay we're not testing anymore that's what, that's what we got we got the support we need but if they would have run the test again maybe they would have got a 40 or maybe they would have got the 19 or something but you know it's it's not if you were a scientist and you wanted to make some scientific claim that's what you would do but if you are a brand and you mm-hmm. want to make a claim on your product it, you get the data you want and that's what you go with and so uh but i th- i think it's important also that consumers have to realize this th- this is not just about claims about spf but claims about everything like anti wrinkle uh how you know combing your hair studies or you know anti aging products these are Uh, All of the the data that supports how good a specific ingredient is, it's not scientific data, it's claim support data, and they did a test and they got a good result, and they're like, oh yeah, this thing works.
0: To be fair, just a little bit, I'm not defending the claims people here, but I will say that there are methods that are generally accepted in circles to demonstrate that something works in the way that it works. So sometimes these methods do come from scientific literature where people research to develop these methods and then they get adapted in the claims world to demonstrate a specific claim. So it's not like people are willy nilly um, doing what they want. There is a little bit of, um, you know, integrity to it and a little bit of scientific method, but. At the end of the day, you're not going to do a test that's going to show your product is stinky. You're going to do a test that shows your product is great, right? So you just have to keep that in right. mind.
1: Absolutely. And I think sometimes what also does happen, if you do a test and it shows your product didn't perform great, then you just don't publicize it. <laughs> you, you know, you put that test away and <laughs> yeah. you run another You one. put that
0: in the shredder. You, you,
1: you, <laughs> you adjust the test to make it, you know. Uh, I mean, here's the bottom line. For you as a consumer... You shouldn't be surprised by any beauty product who is making a claim, and then upon further reinvestigation by some independent uh, testing, that they might not necessarily hold up. Uh, this doesn't mean that the brand is lying, but you know, when they make a claim, an advertising claim, they're not necessarily trying to find absolute truth.
0: <laughs> well said. Well, let's dig into some of our fabulous questions. Our first question is an audio question. We love, 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 love to hear your voice on our show. If you'd like to submit an audio question, please do so with your smartphone. Super easy. Go to your voice memos app or something similar. Hit record, ask your question and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. All right, Perry, let's hear it.
1: All right, here we go.
2: Hi, Beauty Brains. Um, Been a big fan of your show for a long time. and just uh, So I'm sending an article... About um, hair conditioners. So from what I remember, you guys have always said that there's really no need to keep a hair conditioner on for very long um, at all. It's really done its job as soon as you put it on. And then um, I know there's been some debate on like proteins, but I don't think either of you was saying like proteins make like a huge amount of change or like at least not. I don't think you've ever said like it penetrates the hair shaft, right? Um, So this article is saying these things and it is written by a layperson, but this article is like, oh, you need to take 10 minutes for the conditioner and some proteins do this and some proteins do this and some other kinds of conditioners do this. And so I was just wondering if you guys could go through it um, and give your thoughts or debunk it really. Thank you.
1: Thanks for that question, Claudia. We always loved seeing uh, what people have to write about hair products. (laughs)
0: We love hair.
1: Indeed, indeed. Okay, so this one was – we'll uh, have the link in the show notes, but this article that uh, she asked about is about hair conditioners. Um, now, first, I, I want to say the good stuff first. First, the there are a couple of good points. The author does claim that conditioners cannot undo years of damage, which is true. Uh, conditioners don't true. really repair hair. as the, You know, sometimes they're marketed that way, but uh, –
0: Yeah. Once your hair is damaged, guys, I'm very sorry. The damage is done. You cannot undo it. What you can do is make your hair feel better. You can make it comb better, make it look more shiny. And that's typically done with some sort of superficial coating. But once that coating washes off and goes away, you're still left with damaged hair.
1: And the other thing that was said as like, I agree that hair should be conditioned on a regular basis, especially if you frequently wash your hair or you style it or you color it. Overall, I think conditioning is a good thing to do.
0: Yeah, especially if you have some length on your hair. The longer your hair is, the more it's been in this world, the more it's weathered, the more you're going to want to condition it and restore it.
1: Okay, now let's talk about the stuff that we don't necessarily agree with. <laughs>
0: That was everything nice you had to say, Perry?
1: Uh, (laughs) Well, the author does claim that there are several types of conditioners on the market. And while I agree there are a lot of things marketed, I personally only see the world in two types of conditioners. There are the rinse-off conditioners and the leave-on conditioners. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, those really are the two main formats. And I think... You know, when we're talking conditioning the hair, I think a lot of them even work in the same way as well. So I would agree with this. Now, I think where the difference is, is level of conditioning, but I I think we might disagree there, which, you know, we'll get to.
1: (laughs) I mean, I agree that uh, with all of those, you can have a different level of conditioning. Um, And that's just related to how much of an ingredient is put in the product. Uh, But let's, let's just go on here. One piece that I... Uh, that she asked about. And she says, the author says you need to leave a conditioner in your hair for 10 minutes. Now, I don't think there's any real downside to leaving the hair conditioner in your hair for that long. But I also don't think there's that much upside. And I kind of looked at this and doing trust tests uh, specifically, because I wondered about this. Um, Pretty much conditioners are going to work right away. And, you know, you can rinse it out, pretty much as fast as you put it in, assuming that you've coated every strand. um, Leaving a rinse-off conditioner hair longer, it doesn't make it work better. At least that's been my experience.
0: I have seen in certain formulations that I've done where leaving it on longer um, certainly has helped with the softness of the hair. So for example, leaving it on 2 minutes versus 5 minutes versus 10 minutes um, I have seen differences in the feel of the hair. Now, whether that translates to better condition, I'm not sure. I think the consumer would believe it's perceived to be more conditioned. Yeah.
1: No, it, it, that does make sense. Uh, I I think when I did studies, I focused mostly on combing studies um, and evaluating things because that's a, something that's easier to measure. You can use a Uh, diastron combing robotic comb and it tells you a force per pulling it through and and that sort of thing and i also Mm -hmm, think mm -hmm. when you do a a a panel test where you have a person comb through one they can say something combs easier than something else better than they can say oh that feels softer than something else so anyway um the author author also goes through and breaks down the different types of conditioners based on viscosity i actually find this a bit naive Uh, you can make an intense conditioner that's really thin and you can make a light Uh conditioner that's really thick Uh, it's it's understandable that this uh, author believes this because that's how conditioners are marketed but conditioning is not actually a function of how thick it is it's just it's a good heuristic for uh marketers to tell consumers because, you know, people just believe, oh, it's thin. It must be lighter. Oh, it's thick. It must be heavier.
0: Yeah. I definitely have experienced this with our testing salon where we've made things that are incredibly conditioning uh, and they're perhaps on the thinner side. And they're like, well, it needs to be thick. And we're like, why does it need to be thick? it's We're not going to change the amount of conditioning. In fact, we'll just make it soap more on the hair or be harder to rinse just to thicken it. Um, But I guess perception is reality. So, and apparently this is the perception of the author.
1: Absolutely. And I believe it's a perception of a lot of consumers. I'm just here to tell you Mm -hmm. thickness and conditioning aren't necessarily related. Uh, The other thing I want to point out is conditioners don't actually increase the moisture level in your hair. I mean, the main thing they do is they put the coating on the hair Fiber surface so that your comb and your fingers are going to slip by. It's going to help flatten down the cuticle and maybe fuse together some split ends. Um, And things like silicones, cationic surfactants, and cationic polymers are what's really doing the the work here. Emollients and oils, they can help with the coating and make the hair maybe a little more flexible, but for the most part, in a rinse off conditioner, you know, I think things like emollients and and, uh, humectants, those things will mostly just get rinsed away because of the emulsifiers in your conditioner.
0: Yeah, moisture is a really big perception thing. In skin, moisture is real. In hair, it really is perception. It's such an interesting consumer claim for me.
1: Uh, There were some claims made about deep conditioners. I I really think, in my experience, deep conditioners are really just a, a ruse or a marketing gimmick. In fact, when I worked, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, when I worked on the Tresemme and the Vo5 brands, when we wanted to make a an intensive conditioner or like a three minute miracle, we literally just doubled the level of the hero and sterile alcohols, uh, maybe up the conditioner like you know a tenth of a percent, and then we called that an intensive conditioner. So, <laughs> I mean. As far as people could tell, oh, it's intensive because you call it intensive, you make it thick. It fits the story better, but honestly, I <laughs> I don't think you are gonna get better results than if you would just use a good leave or a good rinse-out conditioner. <laughs> that's
0: maybe <laughs> I don't know the the consumer in me says they're real, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the consumer in me. I know the reality, you know, but I like a good treatment. Weekly, just letting something soak on in my hair, smearing out this thick cream—it's a ritual, and I—I'm gonna keep going with it.
1: <laughs> no, keep doing it. If you enjoy doing it, it makes you feel better about your hair. <laughs> I'm just saying, this—these are the kinds of things that go on in the beauty industry.
0: Um, but on the contrary, I have had deep conditioners make my hair. Uh, More frizzy, more staticky. I'll tell you why. Because some brands load these things up with these cationic conditioning agents. Yes. And you get so many on the hair, it does an opposite and starts the charges, all these positive charges on the hair start to repel each other. Your hair looks frizzier, looks more staticky. I've actually probably had that happen more often than not with these deep conditioners. You can overdo it. You
1: can Uh, Here's another one we might disagree a little bit on, uh, but (laughs) there's some talk about protein conditioners and protein treatments, and they talk about rebuilding the cuticles. Uh, Again, like we said up front, they don't rebuild anything. Um, Now, proteins, as we talked about in previous episodes, they can leave a film on the hair, and they help flatten down the cuticle, Uh, but but that's not rebuilding the hair. Um, And the suggestion that the protein effect lasts through three washings I guess if you don't wash your hair that well, maybe it'll last longer. But uh.
0: I think it depends on the protein. It depends on the charge of the protein, the charge of the hair, uh, the type of product it's put on. I have seen some differences with different types of proteins. I think that you know, for the protein to work, it has to form this film over the hair. That's how it does work. I don't think it's changing anything about the intrinsic properties of the hair fiber, but I think when it becomes, we'll call it part of the hair for whatever time period, I think the protein is exerting some sort of effect. And if you do these grooming studies um, and these tensile strength studies, I think you can see some differences, but then again, once that protein goes away, your hair is back to being itself.
1: And finally, there was a mention of leave-in conditioners. I think leave-in conditioners can actually condition better than rinse-off. And essentially because you're leaving more active ingredients in your hair. Mm-hmm. Because with a rinse-off, you rinse a lot of the active conditioning stuff just down the drain. That's that's just how it goes. On the other hand, it also means a leave-in, might, you might get too much stuff on your hair so they could leave your hair feeling heavy and weighed down. And also those conditioning ingredients can kind of attract dust and dirt and particles. So it's conditioned better, but then it gets dirty faster.
0: I'm not a fan of leaving conditioners just for that reason. Makes me want to wash more quickly.
1: So there's, a, there's our thoughts on the hair conditioner article. Uh, feel free. I guess we'll uh, put a link in the show notes if you want to read it.
0: Yeah. We have another audio question.
1: All right. Let's play this one from Anka. Hello Beauty Brains, my name is Anka and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I have a question for you. In the past few years, I noticed that the trend of animal cruelty-free products is getting more and more popular. Now as a person who works in research myself, I know the in vitro tests can only give us this amount of data and that more information is achieved by animal tests. Is this trend safe enough, though, and are the cosmetic companies going to go animal cruelty-free in the end? Thanks so much, and good luck with your work.
0: I think that's a really, really interesting question because typically cruelty-free is, for me, a claim about the values of the company. Are they testing their products on animals, which hardly any companies are? or are they using ingredients that have been tested on animals? I don't typically equate that with a safety claim. Do you, Perry?
1: Well, I mean the reason that uh, animal testing was ever done on cosmetics was for safety reasons, right? It's it's safety testing. They uh, The dreaded drays testing was done in rabbit's mm-hmm. eyes just to make sure that uh, it's not going to blind people. There's a lot of ingredients done for like testing on guinea pig skins to make sure people aren't going to get burned by ingredients. So that's kind of why animal testing was done. It was a safety testing.
0: But I guess I've just assumed, or I guess it's been great for me to live in a a world where animal testing isn't really done because the products that are put on the market are safe. And it, maybe that's because of historical animal testing data for sure. But I just always create um, a cruelty free with the values of a brand, not, hmm, did they do the right safety testing on this product? I've, I've just never thought about it in that way because I just assume cosmetic products are safe.
1: Well, they're safe because all of the ingredients have been tested on animals before. And that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, it's, at
0: some point in time. I mean, yeah. you
1: can easily look at it. You go to the Cosmetic Ingredient Review, the CIR, and you read about the safety testing that's been done on ingredients. And yeah, most every ingredient used commonly in cosmetics has been tested on animals already. And brands that say they're cruelty-free, they're just sort of living off of the... the The nasty testing that had come before them and so they can say they they can say that they don't test on animals because they don't have to test on animals because somebody already did that dirty work for them so
0: yeah so the really interesting question here that anka asks is is in vitro testing adequate to demonstrate that cruelty-free products are safe and i would say for most instances Yes, we have many animal study models that, or excuse me, we have many in vitro models that can replicate these animal models to look at uh, dermal irritancy, ocular. Um, irritation, but there are some things that just cannot be tested by in vitro means. Perry, can you think of any?
1: Yeah, I mean, abs- absolutely, like inhalation testing. We do not have a, an artificial lung where somebody can, you, you know, uh, you know, the way that is done is you have guinea pigs or mice in uh, an aquarium and you put the chemical in the atmosphere and they breathe it for hours and you see what ha- health things that happen to them. We don't have any kind of, uh, you know, in vitro non-animal equivalent of that. So, if there's an ingredient that is going to be used in an aerosol product, you have to do that inhalation testing. So, so no, and nobody wants to do that anymore. So, what you end up ha- what ends up happening is that companies will only use ingredients that have already been previously tested that they don't have to test. So, so nobody's putting in any new ingredients.
0: Yeah. The other testing that I think is really difficult to check for is reproductive toxicity because reproduction is a, a mechanism of animals and you just need animal studies to really accurately really ex- assess whether or not an ingredient is going to cause any challenges in reproduction. And that requires offspring assessment. There are bacterial studies that can be used to look at reproductive toxicity, but reproductive toxicity is really complex. It involves many things, uh, which would include some different endpoints like mutagenicity, um, clastogenicity, aneugenicity, and the bacterial studies can't really assess for all of them. It probably only assesses for mutagenicity, which is where the actual DNA is modified. So I would say that these tests can check some reproductive toxicity endpoints, but not all of them. And only animal studies would be adequate or reliable enough to conclude whether or not an ingredient has reproductive toxicity issues. So I think a lot in the last five to 10 years has been developed. I think we're going to see a lot coming in the future. Maybe we can make these artificial lungs, Perry. I'm sure somebody's working on it. Uh, no, so absolutely. people are trying to figure out reproductive models with maybe animal cells or alternatives to it. I know that we've seen human skin from cadavers be used um, in lieu of animal testing uh, by a company out of Boston. So pretty cool stuff in the works. But I would say today, no, the in vitro test is not adequate enough to determine if ingredients are safe. But I think you can rest assured that if a product is on the market, the product itself is safe because it's illegal to put an unsafe product on the market.
1: And I, I would just I just finish this piece by saying that the way that companies uh, ensure that their products are safe on the market is that they just use technologies that already exist. They don't, they don't use new technologies. Uh, and until there is a suitable replacement for all animal testing... You're just going to have products that are, you know, all work the same as they did 20 years ago, you know, for the most part.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, our next question comes from Isia.
1: Isia writes, uh, I love your show so much. You've helped me understand a lot of things. My question is about eye creams. I've noticed that they're usually much more expensive than regular face creams. Why is that? Is it because it's required more testing before it can be used? Do they contain more expensive ingredients or is it just marketing trying to earn more money?
2: Well, this
0: is an interesting question because I think eye creams being more expensive than a regular facial moisturizer is pretty common amongst almost all brands. And I think that's for a couple reasons. But before I get into that, let me just state, I do think you need an eye cream. Perry, you might think it's unnecessary, but I think eye creams are designed to be around the eye area. They don't contain ingredients that could seep up into your eyelashes and get pulled into your eye, whereas face creams can contain some actives where that may happen and you get eye irritation. For example, sunscreen, I think we've all had sunscreen go into our eyes, mostly Perry from spraying sunscreen into his eyes. Um, (laughs) and I don't do that anymore. I like, I will not let that go. Uh, but anyway, so I think it's uh, pretty essential to use an eye cream that is designed for the eye area. That's not too heavy, not too greasy. Um, and that won't cause any eye irritation, but you know, I used to think, wow, eye creams are such a ripoff. They're so expensive. But when you look at how much product you actually apply to the eye area, how much you use, and then how much the tube costs, if you were to, yes, if you were to rub that all over your face, it would be super expensive because you're using too much product. But when you look at the turnover rate of an eye cream compared to how fast you're going through a facial moisturizer or a body moisturizer, I think like use per use, it's not too much of a difference. So It could be marketing trying to earn more money. I'm sure, you know, some of these products are not very uh, high end or expensive, and, you know, you could be just getting duped there. I don't want to say that all eye creams contain more expensive ingredients. A lot of them do. I don't know if they contain any meaningful levels of these expensive ingredients, but they do uh, tend to contain more actives because you're eye area can be the place that looks the worst on your face. And so you want to treat it as well as you can uh, with hydration and different actives. So I would say the, I think the to sum it up, the biggest reason eye creams are more expensive than regular face creams is one, they can be. And two, when you are talking about just putting a little daub of eye cream under your eye, it's not so expensive when you think about it that way.
1: And I would say Don't take uh, beauty product use advice from a uh, 50-plus-year-old male chemist who barely uses products.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I use products, so take it from me. Indeed. indeed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, when you're buying an eye cream, it's going to depend on the company, too. Because some companies will just take, oh, it's a regular cream. Let's put it in a smaller jar. We'll make it a little bit thinner. It's the same formula, and we'll call it an eye cream. And that could perfectly be uh, some eye cream that you buy. Or there are companies who put a lot more research into it, and they develop these eye creams specifically to highlight some of the problems uh, in fixing around the eyes and also use ingredients that are specifically designed around the eyes. It's hard for you as a consumer to know. Look at that. Our next question comes from somebody on Patreon.
0: Whoa, what's Patreon, Perry?
1: Patreon is the way that you can support (laughs) the Beauty Brains. Just go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and you can join all of our other wonderful subscribers. You get your questions answered more quickly than everybody else. And we also have some uh, live events that are for patrons only, which we're going to have one uh, next week. More details for people who are on Patreon for that.
0: Sorry for the cheesy introduction for Patreon, everybody.
1: Hey, it's better than having commercials halfway through the show, huh?
0: <laughs> or the first seven minutes of the show, like other beauty podcasts.
1: Oh boy, <laughs>
0: that was the biggest amount of shade I just threw. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so shady! You don't even need to use sunscreen, <laughs> or you could use burritos. <laughs> hey, who we? <laughs> I Sting. We kid. We kid here. Carrie from Patriot says, "Okay, so I was stumbling through the subreddit, r conspiracy. Are you uh, are you that sounds like a good one? Are you a Reddit user?
0: I usually go for uh, different memes. I like to go look for for different memes. Yeah. Well,
1: I am. uh, I am on Reddit every so often. You'll see me. uh, Well, I guess my handle on Reddit is the joggler. So look for that. Anyway, uh, a user posted something saying that the government is poisoning us and they are concerned with the use of. <laughs> An adequate
0: thread <laughs> forward slash conspiracy. Yeah, exactly.
1: But they are concerned with the use of red 33, blue 1, and methyl found in head and shoulders. They're saying that the methyl causes lung toxicity, but I'm guessing that it would be if you huff it or you smoke it or something like that. Wondering what your opinion is on why do they use red and blue additives, Uh, and then she provides the link. Before we answer this question, I just want to remind everybody (laughs) that anyone can write anything about anything on the internet, (laughs) and they do, really.
0: (laughs) They do, yeah.
1: It doesn't make it true. (laughs) You want to tell us a little bit about methyl methyl isothiochlorozoa? Boy, oh boy, I've said that thing right so many times, I can't believe I stumbled there.
0: (laughs) You know, you say it tomato, I say it tomato. Wait, how do you say it? First, methylchloroisothiazolinone is a preservative. Okay. It's a preservative. It prevents microbial growth in products. And it is used in formulas, seriously, guys, at super tiny levels, 15 parts per million or less for a rinse off and 7.5 parts per million for leave-on. Very, 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 very minimal quantities you don't need much for it to do its work.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the ingredient, you know, we mentioned earlier the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board. They've specifically invested this ingredient, and they found it it's safe in rinse-off products up to that level, uh, the 15 parts per million. Uh, and this is also the level of use that the European Union approves it as and other places around the world. Now there is some concern about people uh, developing sensitization reactions to this, and some some people really do have a, a problem with that.
0: They do, yeah.
1: And that if if you have those reactions, that is certainly a concern. Uh, uh, but you know, if if sensitization to methyl isothiazolinone is a problem for you, uh, you just have to avoid those products. But if you're not allergic, I mean, it's kind of like peanuts. If you're allergic to peanuts, you know, you can't eat peanuts. But the rest of the world who's not allergic to peanuts, they can have peanuts and be perfectly fine.
0: Yep. This preservative was reviewed as recently as 2019 by the CIR. And it's, this has been hot. So they're all over the research guys. You guys can head over to the CIR website, read the review yourself, but specifically we looked at it for inhalation and we found that they wrote about a study where rats were exposed to aerosol concentrations of up to 2.6 milligrams of this preservative for six hours a day, five days a week, which is a lot, and no statistically significant effects were observed. This is massively more than a human would ever experience uh, on their skin. But even at high doses, there was no significant problems observed as far as inhalation goes.
1: Yeah, the author in that Reddit post actually cites the website safecosmetics.org, which really is just a fear-mongering website uh, that exists to scare people and drum up uh, donations to the Environmental Working Group. Because if you look at the studies that they reference on their websites uh, they those studies don't support what the people are claiming this is something that often happens on the internet a an organization wants to do fear-mongering and scaremongering and they'll make a claim and then they'll cite some paper but then if you go read that paper the paper does not support what they're saying it happens all the time it's very frustrating
0: all the time well let's talk about those colorants that they use what did you find
1: yeah, the FDA specifically certifies colorants. Like of all the ingredients in the cosmetic industry in the United States, colorants are the most highly regulated. And red thirty three is approved for safe use in lipstick products up to three percent. Now, the amount used in Head and Shoulders is probably at point zero 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 three percent, a pretty low level. Very
0: low. Yeah. The shampoo is hardly colored, right. so very, 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 very low. Exactly,
1: and. So, no, there isn't a safety concern with that dye that's used. Um, now, the Red 33 can't be used for products around the eye since it hasn't been verified for uh, safety in that area. But uh, all the other places on your body, it's safe to use. And the Blue number 1, that's approved proof uh, safe for everywhere on your body, even the eye area. So...
0: I think you can even eat blue number one. I,
1: I think you can.
0: <laughs> I think you can ingest it, yeah.
1: But the bottom line on these, both of these colors, uh, they are not toxic. They they don't cause cancer.
0: It's interesting. I've gotten a few messages in my personal Instagram inbox, cosmetic underscore chemist, this week. And I don't know if these groups are, are pushing out a lot of notifications. Maybe they're trying to raise some cash at the end of the year. I've gotten a lot of people really scared about what's in their products and they want to know about sulfates and they want to know, know about pegs. I've even gotten colorant questions and people are saying, I'm really scared to use products and that's horrible. Yeah, that's um, and I'm having to convince all these people that, you know, you don't have to worry about ethylene oxide in your products and you don't have to worry about lead in your lipstick. Um So I, I don't know if there's a big push, but it's interesting uh, that this question came in, and I've also gotten hit up pretty big, where people are, are really scared, and I think there's some other things in the world um, to be scared about. Uh, where can people go, Perry, to learn more information about how safe their cosmetics really are?
1: Well, instead of going to the the mongering sites like safecosmetics.org, you, should, you can find some reliable safety information at cosmeticsinfo.org. Uh, but if you want to go straight, now that's filtered information. And, you know, people will say, oh, that's an industry-sponsored website, which it is, definitely. But if you want to go straight to the source, go to the cir-safety.org website. You can look up most any ingredient that's going to be found in cosmetics, and they will have already done some safety evaluation of it. And you can look up the data exactly yourself. You can find out how many... uh, How many rabbits and guinea pigs were used, uh, even in the cruelty-free products? Uh, But I also should point out some of the ingredients, uh, like colorants, they aren't reviewed by the CIR because those are directly reviewed by the FDA, and so the FDA has their own standards there.
0: Very cool. Well, our last question comes to us from Abigail. Abigail B. from Instagram. First, would like to thank us, Perry and I, of the Beauty Brains, for continuing to record our shows. Yay! Yay! We don't know how much it has helped Abigail understand ingredients and what to spend her money on and also keeping her sane in these times. Well, we're very happy that we can continue to push out episodes each week and bring you guys great content.
1: Yeah, we've had like 44 episodes this year.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, Abigail's question, Patrick Ta released a brow wax and Abigail has been wanting to try it, but when she saw the ingredients, it kind of reminded her of soap especially how you have to activate the wax before using it by spraying it with a setting spray. Is this product actually just soap? Huh,
1: interesting.
0: I think we had a question earlier this year where someone wanted to know if they could just use soap in their eyebrows as a brow wax. Do you remember that, Perry?
1: I do remember that, yeah. It was, uh, it was early in the year, though. Well, you know, Valerie, if we had an intern or something, they would go back and look through the catalog of our shows and know which <laughs> number that was, but uh, we don't have that.
0: But if anyone's interested, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I maybe 2021, maybe we get an intern. Because we could, we could use some help with some uh, podcast editing anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 So the product in question is major brow shaping wax by Hollywood makeup artist, Patrick Ta. The product does have to be activated with something water-like before being brushed into the eyebrows with a spoolie. When I watched the video on how to use this product, Patrick just uh, sprayed directly onto the palette itself, took his spoolie and rubbed it into the wax to emulsify it and then spread it into his eyebrows. Now the name wax for this product is really a misnomer because this product is a little bit of an old fashioned emulsion, it has glycerin, water, sodium stearate, sodium oleate, sorbitol, sodium laurate, sodium aristate, sodium chloride, stearic acid, lauric acid, pentasodium pentatate, tetrasodium etrodonate, oil pentapeptide 17, coconut oil, and then it has pigments for the colored version, but he also has a clear version if you just want to shape your brows.
1: You picked this question just so you could show off how you can read all those ingredients, <laughs> didn't you? Sort of. <laughs> okay, done. busted. Cheers to you. Cheers <laughs> to you.
0: <laughs> okay. No, but I, I just wanted to read the ingredients for everyone to show you guys that the name wax in this product is a bit of a misnomer because there's actually not any waxes in this product. And if it really were a wax, it wouldn't be water soluble. The reason this product contains water is that it contains a peptide, miristoyl pentapeptide 17, which is a synthetic peptide that's water-soluble that is alleged to enhance the appearance or thickness slash density of eyebrow hair. There were also some studies for eyelashes for it. And uh, these peptides really are, you know, in the studies from vendors, They look pretty efficacious, but I use the word allege because you can never really trust a supplier for their data. So we have this fabulous peptide. And then I think Patrick Ta also wanted styling properties for this product. And this peptide and the glycerin and the water that it's in are not going to give you those styling properties. Uh, but it's water-soluble. So he had to create an emulsion of sorts, or his chemist did. So he had this emulsion created using fatty acids, like the stearic acid, oleic acid, lauric acid, and myristic acid, and he saponified them. So neutralized them to turn them into uh, these sodium stearates, sodium oleates, which kind of look like soaps when you think about soap chemistry. And yes, well this is The chemistry of soap, it's really surfactant chemistry. You're turning these fatty acids into surfactants to give them emulsifying properties. So I wouldn't go as far as to say his product is just soap, but I would definitely say it uses similar chemistry, but it's water soluble. So it can easily be applied and easily be removed. And a bonus, it contains some nice actives.
1: And it's not going to sting your eyes like soap would.
0: (laughs) No, I hope not. Yeah. It looks like a a great product, but I think, you know, going back to our earlier episode this year, you could probably still use soap. It may be harder to spread and uh, harder to get off. Maybe a little crustier looking, but it might work just as well.
1: And might sting your eyes if you get (laughs) any. So there's that. Yeah.
0: All right, everyone. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, if you get a chance, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer.
0: Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains. Perry's on Reddit at the Joggler. and we have a <laughs> Facebook page.
1: Did you just dox me? I can't believe it. <laughs> Ah, no. We're also on Patreon. As we said before, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe.
0: Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty.
1: Thanks, everyone. Kittens.